Well, Happy New Year. A few weeks ago, there was a lot of talk about a rare astronomical event. On December 21st, the paths of Jupiter and Saturn caused them to appear very close together from the perspective of the Earth, which happens about every 20 years. But what made this recent event so special is that Jupiter and Saturn appeared much closer together than they ordinarily do. In fact, this was the closest that they have appeared together in the night sky since the year 1226. They were so close together that they appeared like one massive star in the sky. And unless you've been living under a rock for the last few weeks, I'm sure you heard about this because it was much publicized. And when this was being talked about in the media, it was being consistently called the Star of Bethlehem. Everybody heard about this, right? Okay. Now, the reason people called this the Star of Bethlehem is because for a long time, astronomers have tried to, to scientifically explain what the Bible says about the star that heralded Jesus' birth. And one of the theories they've come up with is that the star was a convergence of Jupiter and Saturn, just like we saw two weeks ago. Now, I don't agree with that theory for reasons you're going to hear this morning, but I appreciated the publicity because the next passage in our study of the Gospel of Matthew is the text that talks about the Star of Bethlehem, which we're going to look at today. So my guess is today's passage will be very familiar to us as we see the wise men follow the star to Jesus and their encounter with the wicked King Herod. But while this is familiar ground, I think we're going to find that a lot of what we think we know about this story is not exactly the way the Bible portrays it. We've taken a lot of our ideas about these events from the nativity scenes that we see at Christmas time, rather than from what the Bible actually says. But today we're going to do a lot more than just set the record straight about the wise men, because I think today's passage gives us a profound description of the way that Jesus generates different responses in different people. Today we're going to see a wonderful truth. God leads people to worship Jesus who we would never expect would wind up worshiping Jesus. We're also going to see an important warning. Many people who we think would or should or do worship Jesus in actuality do not. And that's what we're going to see today in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we're going to examine the responses to Jesus that we find in this passage responses that still exist in our own time today. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 2. And as you're turning, let me remind you of what we saw in chapter 1. First, we saw Jesus' genealogy, which taught us that Jesus is the culmination of all the promises that God made across the whole Old Testament. The promise that exiled Israel would find restoration is fulfilled in Jesus. The promise that King David would be the head of an everlasting dynasty is fulfilled in Jesus. The promise that in Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed is fulfilled in Jesus. And then at the end of chapter 1, we looked at the, the wondrous birth of Jesus, and we saw that too fulfilled prophecy. Jesus was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary. We saw that Jesus is God with us, and we saw that Jesus has come to save His people from their sins, fulfilling many prophecies that were given to Isaiah. So that's what we've seen so far. Jesus has been born, and now we come to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. 
When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So Jesus the Messiah has been born. God the Son has taken on humanity. What happens next? Well, people start to learn about Jesus' birth, and they react differently. There are four responses to Jesus' birth that we find in this passage, three of which are totally inadequate, and the fourth of which is right and appropriate. Let's start with the first response to Jesus we find in this passage, which is the response of King Herod. Now, who is Herod? Well, when Jesus was born, the Romans controlled Judea and Jerusalem. And Herod is a local figure whom the Romans have named king over this region. Herod is not an Israelite. He is not a descendant of Jacob. History tells us that he is an Edomite, a descendant of Jacob's twin Esau. You might remember the book of Genesis talks about Jacob and Esau battling with each other in their mother's womb. And God told their mother, Rebekah, in Genesis 25, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. And of these two nations, God elected, He sovereignly chose to work through the younger of these twins, Jacob. God rejected Esau. Malachi 1-2, God says, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. And as time went by, Esau and his descendants gave God plenty of reason to hate them. Edom was a constant enemy of Israel. Uh, they're the Gentile nation that is most often prophesied against in the whole Old Testament. In fact, the whole book of Obadiah is devoted to God declaring Edom's going down. But now, centuries later, here is an Edomite who has usurped the throne of Israel. How did this happen? Well, Herod's father was an opportunist, and he became governor of Judea by currying favor with Rome. And as a young man, Herod, riding on his daddy's coattails, got Rome's attention by serving his father effectively. He efficiently collected taxes. He brutally put down banditry. The Romans were so impressed that later, when Herod's dad was assassinated and other leaders in Judea fell into chaos, Rome kicked all the leaders out and said, Herod, you're going to be king. You're going to be our man in the area. Herod was a shrewd and a ruthless politician, and he was a survivor. When he chose the wrong side in the Second Roman Civil War, and probably should have wound up dead, 
Herod was able to fast talk his way into friendship with his former enemy, Caesar Augustus. You've heard of him. And then to keep Caesar happy, Herod built two cities named for Caesar, one of which featured some amazing building techniques for the day. Herod was a smart cookie. There was underwater construction in one of these cities, and he was using hydraulic cement two, over 2,000 years ago. But Herod knew if he was to reign long, he didn't just need to curry favor with Rome. He needed to keep the Jews happy, because during this period, the Jews were prone to revolt. And so Herod launched another massive construction project. He expanded and beautified the temple in Jerusalem greatly. To keep the Gentiles in his kingdom happy, he built pagan cities and temples to the north. Herod knew how to play everybody all the time, and he kept them all, if not happy, uh, not in revolt. He also steered Judea through a difficult famine, and he established a dynasty that would reign for more than a century. Herod was so effective, he is known in history as Herod the Great. But while Herod was effective, he was also murderous. And worse, as he got older, he began to descend into madness and paranoia. Herod actually killed one of his wives and three of his sons and several other relatives. It was a joke in Rome that it was better to be Herod's pig than his son. Herod was so wicked that when he neared death, he knew nobody was going to mourn him. So he came up with an idea. He thought, I should, be grieved. I should be mourned, I should be grieved. So I'll have several popular leaders rounded up, and they'll be killed when I die, so there will be grieving when I'm gone. This was the, the thought process of this wicked man. And as we begin Matthew 2, Herod is now an old man. He's only got a few weeks left. And Herod begins to hear rumors of foreign visitors in Jerusalem who are inquiring about a recent royal birth. Now, Herod knew there had been no births to his family recently. This had to be something else. But what? Well, while Herod was not an Israelite, history tells us he did claim to follow the Jewish religion. So Herod would have known some things about the Old Testament. He would have known that he was a usurper. He wasn't just an Edomite ruling over Israel. He was occupying a throne which God had promised forever to the house of David. More than that, Herod knew that God had promised to restore the Davidic dynasty to the throne. Look at verse 4. It's Herod who knows there is a Christ and makes inquiries about it. Herod knows he's a usurper. He knows the Messiah is coming. He hears of a royal birth, and he is paranoid, and his mind immediately goes to the worst case. Is this it? Has the Christ been born? Is my throne in danger here at the end of my life? And for once, his paranoia is well-founded. And so what does he do? This wicked man again decides to embark on the path of murder. But to kill the Christ child first, he must find him. And so Herod seeks reliable information about the Christ. And so he gathers together the religious leaders of Jerusalem. Now at this time, Judaism was a very divided religion. There were different factions and parties within the faith. And in verse 4, Herod assembles the leaders of the two dominant parties. The chief priests were the leaders of the Sadducee party, the party of the elites, and the scribes were the teachers of the law who were followed by the common people. Most of them followed the, the theology of the Pharisees. And Herod asked these religious experts about the Christ, and these dueling denominations both gave Herod the same answer. See, friends, the prophecy of the coming of Christ is not some vague thing that can be interpreted 50 different ways. It was very clear. Even theological enemies could agree about the details here. And we're going to look at this prophecy in just a minute. 
But what Herod is told is indeed the Christ is coming. He is from the lineage of David, and he will be born in Bethlehem. So Herod gets some answers. But how will he kill the Christ? Bethlehem was a pretty small town. If he sent his men in and people started asking questions, I mean, you know what a small town's like. People are going to start getting suspicious of these outsiders. If he just sent in troops, there would be a big commotion. Either way, the Christ's family may escape. No, Herod needs more information so that he can surreptitiously identify the Christ and have him killed in a targeted assassination. And to do that, Herod decides to use the wise men. So he calls them together for a meeting, and first he asks them some questions. He needs to get some identifying information. He doesn't know much about this child who he means to kill. And so he says, when did you guys first see the star that brought you? He needs to calculate the Christ's age. We're not told what the wise men replied, but in verse 16 we learn that Herod is under the impression that Jesus is under the age of two. Second, Herod decides to make the wise men into his unwitting agents who will gather information for him. He says, oh, you've come to pay homage to the Christ? I would like to do that too. I've heard he's in Bethlehem. Can you go check it out? When you find him, let me know. I'd love to meet him. Herod is supremely confident in his ability to deceive these wise men. And he should be. He is slick. He deceived Caesar Augustus. He can certainly fool these guys. But what Herod didn't realize is he couldn't fool God. And God intervened to make sure the wise men did not give Herod the information that he sought. And so we'll see next week that Herod, without the specific information that he sought, decided to try and eliminate the Christ anyway by committing a mass murder in Bethlehem of all the infant boys under the age of two. So what do we see here? Herod wants to kill the Christ. The first response to Jesus we see here is intense, hateful, violent opposition. And friends, tragically, this response is still alive in our world today. Many people hate Jesus, and they want to be rid of him and his gospel and his followers. And why is that? Because like Herod, they can't stand the fact that Jesus challenges their usurpation of his rightful rule. Herod was an illegitimate king. The appearing of Jesus exposed his fraudulent crown. The appearing of Jesus revealed Jesus' right to rule. And Herod resists and he resents that. And in the same way, I would tell you today, Jesus' appearing and his sinless life and his substitutionary death expose our sin. In John 3, he said, The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus has exposed that our sin is not a small deal. It is not a guilty pleasure or a victimless crime or two consenting adults or whatever other rationalization we might offer. Sin is destructive wickedness that merits the wrath of God. And sometimes when people hear the gospel and when Jesus exposes their sin as wickedness, they respond by hating him because they love the false pleasures of their sin so much they can't stand to hear the truth that their sin is destroying them and will destroy them forever. In the same way, Jesus' resurrection reveals his authority and his right to rule over us, that he is God, that he is the Lord, and we must obey him. And people hate that too. 
especially powerful people like Herod. Think of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, His Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast their cords away from us. People want to be rid of God and Christ so that we can do what we want. That was the first temptation. The serpent hissed to Eve, wasn't it? You'll be like God. You can do what you want to do. People long for that. They want to be their own masters. And they hate it when they hear that their rebellion is doomed. But Psalm 2 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. There is a God in heaven who will hold people to account. And no amount of rebellion is going to change that. And so tragically, many people follow the example of King Herod. They respond to Jesus with hatred because Jesus exposes our sin and demands to rule over us. And because of their hatred of Jesus, they hate the gospel and they hate Christians. And that shouldn't be a surprise. Jesus told us this would happen. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Friends, this is where persecution comes from. This is why millions of Christians have been martyred across the history of the world. Because Jesus is hated by people, and he's hated by the world system, and that's all ultimately because Satan hates Jesus, and Satan is pulling all the strings in this fallen world. And so they wanted to kill Jesus back then, and they want to destroy his people and his message today. But believing friends, be encouraged. Though we may suffer because of this hatred, God has called us to endure, and He has given us His Holy Spirit so that we will. And remember this. These are powerful words in times of persecution and hardship and suffering. Remember these words. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, that's an encouragement to remember. Opposition is a sign that we are indeed the people of God and that we will reign with Jesus forever. All right, so that is the first response we see to Jesus in this passage, which is Herod's hateful desire to kill Christ. We come now to the second response to Jesus we find, which is the response of Jerusalem. We're told in verse 3 that when the wise men appeared in Jerusalem, not only was Herod troubled, but all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Why? Well, some commentators have tried to connect this to Herod's madness. You know, if Jerusalem knew Herod was worried about the birth of the Messiah, they might have feared whatever violence he would unleash on them. And that's certainly possible. But the text doesn't say that Jerusalem was troubled because of Herod. It says they were troubled alongside Herod. Why? Because the Messiah means trouble. There had been other people in the years before Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah. They were mostly bandits and insurrectionists murderers and thieves, and they caused a lot of trouble and they got a lot of attention, the bad kind of attention, from Herod and Rome. And so the attitude in Jerusalem was best to have no Messiah, best to keep our heads down and avoid trouble. Because they have forgotten the glory of God's promise. They have become mired in unbelief. And I think Matthew includes this detail about Jerusalem's bad attitude about the birth of Jesus to foreshadow what will happen later when he begins his ministry. We're going to see in this book that Jesus receives a pretty favorable reception when he ministered in the north, in Galilee, the backwoods area. But when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, things are quite different. It's in Jerusalem that Jesus says in chapter 16, 
that he must go and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It's to Jerusalem that Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together, but you were not willing. It's in Jerusalem that we read of people saying of Jesus, all the people, in fact, in chapter 27, that His blood be on us and on our children. And here, even in His infancy, Matthew tells us the people of Jerusalem have no real interest in Christ. For once, the news of a potential Messiah didn't generate excitement or anticipation or a revolt. It was just seen as trouble. And this is a bit different than Herod's response, right? Herod had murderous intent. This is more like indifference or dread. What will the Christ's birth bring upon us? What hardship will it make us endure? And friends, I think a lot of people today still have the same response to Jesus. Maybe they don't feel a lot of overt hostility towards Him, but they resist Jesus because following Him is a demanding and a difficult thing. And people think, my life is hard enough already. I don't need that. I've got a job. I've got a family. I've got obligations. I don't need the hassle and the upheaval and the tumult that following Jesus in a real way will bring. They're not interested in seeing their lives transformed or purified. They'd rather have stability and normalcy. A nice, undisrupted life. But Jesus isn't a little addition who fits into a neat corner of our overly busy lives. Jesus is Lord, and He means to transform us. Jesus demands to be our highest priority. Chapter 19, He's going to meet a rich young ruler. And Jesus is going to tell this guy, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to get rid of your idol, which is money. Friends, renouncing your idol is not a fun thing to do. In chapter 8, Jesus will tell a man whose father has died, if you want to be my follower, you've got to put me above your family obligations. In chapter 6, he will say plainly, you cannot serve two masters. It's Jesus or something else, but it's never both. Jesus is an uncompromising Lord who demands supremacy over our lives and who deserves that supremacy. More than that, Jesus tells us there is a cost to following him. In chapter 8, Jesus warns a would-be disciple that if you want to follow me, it means you're going to be homeless right now because Jesus was a homeless itinerant teacher. It's a hard life to be Jesus' follower. You know, we often leave that part out when we give folks the gospel. Maybe we shouldn't. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In that day and age, to take up your cross meant you were walking the slow walk of torture to the place of execution. Jesus said, that's what following me is like. It's self-denial. It's suffering. That's not the kind of stuff you see in Super Bowl ads. Friends, people don't want that disruption. They don't want to pay that cost. The offer of the gospel makes them uneasy and afraid because we all want the smooth and easy path of least resistance. And to put Jesus truly above self and family and bank account and retirement plans means that Jesus will rock the boat of our life. And because of that, people find him troublesome and want to avoid him. And in so doing, they follow the second example we see here, the response of Jerusalem, to fear the Christ and to avoid Him. All right, we come now to the third response to Jesus we find in this passage, which is the response of the religious leaders. Herod calls for meetings with the chief priests and the scribes, and he asks them, where will the Messiah be born? In verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. 
For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The answer the religious leaders give Herod is a loose quotation which combines two texts from the Old Testament. The first of these texts is the, the prophecy, the famous prophecy of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which was our Christmas passage last year, which says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This prophecy was given 700 years before Jesus was born, and it predicted that God would give Israel a miraculous king who will be born in Bethlehem, but whose true origins date back to antiquity. The Hebrew terms here, when used in combination, speak of the era before creation, the era when the only one who was, was God. And so in Bethlehem, a promised king is coming who will be both God and man. That's the first part of the quotation. The second part of the quotation comes from 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. There the Israelites commit themselves to following King David, and they quote the Lord as saying, You will be shepherd for my people Israel. This quotation highlights the fact that the Messiah will be from the house of David. So Herod says, Tell me about the Christ. And they say, Well, he's coming. He's a descendant of David, and he will be born in Bethlehem. And on all of that, they are 100% right. But what I want you to see here is that these are religious leaders who know their Bibles. They know where the Messiah is to be born. They would have known the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, we looked at a few weeks ago, gave a timeline on when Messiah would appear, should have put them on the lookout. They live in a moment when their city is rocked by these foreign wise men who have appeared asking about the birth of the Messiah. And yet, what do these religious leaders do with their knowledge? Do they go out looking for Jesus? Do they go tell the wise men, oh, you want to find him? Here he is. Do they join up with the wise men? No. Instead, they tell Herod everything he wants to know. Evil King Herod is suddenly interested in the Bible. That should have got them suspicious. Instead of being suspicious, they just blab the whole thing to him and apparently wash their hands of it. Their reaction to the birth of Jesus is that they know about the Christ, but they are unwilling to seek him. He remains an object of intellectual curiosity, but not a person to be sought or worshipped. And friends, this is an extremely dangerous and common category today. Many people are interested in the Bible, but their interest is misguided. They're not interested in learning about the Bible to draw near to Jesus. Instead, they use the Bible for some other purpose. To become a prophecy expert. To look spiritual to construct some new doctrine to rationalize their sin or deny some unpleasant truth, to become a celebrity pastor, or just because the Bible is very interesting and fun to think about. But friends, the Scripture is not an end in itself, and it is not a means towards rationalization or self-glorification. The Bible is the means that God has given us to know and love and worship Jesus, and the religious leaders of Jerusalem missed it. They knew their Bibles. They knew the prophecies, but they didn't care about meeting Jesus. And this tragically foreshadows what would happen decades later during Jesus' ministry. Mark's gospel tells us it is the religious leaders from Jerusalem who blaspheme the Holy Spirit by attributing Jesus' miracles to Satan. 
The next time we read about Jerusalem religious leaders in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 15, we see that they show up and they rage a huge controversy about whether Jesus' disciples wash their hands. How petty. Chapter 22, these same guys who think they're so smart, they try to debate Jesus and they get owned. And Jesus is so angry at them. In chapter 23, he says this to them. Woe to you, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly you appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Listen to this. You serpents, you vipers, how will you escape being sentenced to hell? And that leads these guys to say, we want to see Jesus dead. These guys knew their Bibles, but they didn't know what Jesus said in John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. You know, I think we can almost intuitively understand why evil Herod would want to see Jesus dead. And we can understand why people in Jerusalem might think, man, Jesus is really demanding. As, as evil as those sentiments are, we get it. But religious leaders who oppose Jesus... It just seems so bizarre, so self-defeating, so wicked. But I would tell you there are a lot of leaders like this today who are in it not because they want to serve God or to build Christ's people up, but because they want money or power or fame or they want to groom victims for abuse or they want to promote some false ideology. There are a lot of Christian leaders out there who, according to the plain words of the Bible, don't know Jesus. I've known leaders like this. It is tragic to watch, and I would tell you, these folks harm people under their care all the time, and they heap up judgment for themselves, and they will pay all of it to the last cent. It will end terribly for them, just like it ended terribly for the people in Jerusalem, the religious leaders who attacked Christ. Friends, understand this. The Bible is meant not just to inform us. Yes, it should inform us. But more than that, it is meant to transform us. It is meant to draw us away from sin, to draw us nearer to Jesus, to transform our affections and our will and our thoughts. The idea of loving Bible knowledge while being disinterested in Jesus and being disinterested in obeying what he actually says, friends, this is a huge problem in the modern American evangelical church. And we must combat this problem in ourselves. I mean, I, I'm sure I'm as guilty of this as a lot of us, but we, you know, we love coming to church. We want to hear a good sermon out of the Bible. We want exposition. But man, it's different when we get out there and we're supposed to be evangelizing somebody. Eh, I got better things to do. We know what Jesus wants us to be doing. Eh, I got better things to do. Why are we here opening the Bible if we don't actually want to put it into practice? We must combat this in ourselves. Let us not follow this third sinful example of being content to know about the Christ while not truly desiring to know him or love him. So we've seen the three negative examples of Herod, of Jerusalem, and of these leaders. But let's look now at the fourth response to Jesus in this passage, which is the response of the wise men. And what they want to do is to worship the Christ. And friends, that is the right response to Jesus. So let's start by talking about who the wise men were, and then I'm going to draw out five truths about worship that we find in this passage. Who were the wise men? Well, in Greek, they're called magoi, which comes from Persian. And this term refers to a concept we talked about a few months ago when we studied the book of Daniel. In the royal court of King Nebuchadnezzar, you might remember there were people called Chaldeans, and they were allegedly skilled in interpreting omens and in doing astrology. 
And from that time down through the centuries, these magical arts continued to be practiced, principally by Babylonians and Medes and Persians. And that seems to be what is in view here. These wise men, the Magi, are almost certainly Gentiles. They probably come from Babylon, east of Judea. And they are astrologers. They are trying to understand the future by interpreting the night sky. Now, in the first century Jewish world, Gentiles like these were basically regarded as dogs, unclean and worthless. And astrology was an outrageous sin, according to the Mosaic Law. Deuteronomy 18 says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not follow the abominable practices of the nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. So Gentile astrologers are not where we, or first century Jews for that matter, would expect to find a positive example. But I think that's kind of Matthew's point. The Christ is born. Herod doesn't get it. Jerusalem doesn't get it. The teachers of the law don't get it. Nobody who should have understood the significance of this event responded appropriately. But who got it? Gentile astrologers did. Matthew's not trying to promote astrology. Instead, he's showing the extent to which Jerusalem has lost its way. This is like when an unbeliever says to you, hey, let me talk to you about your sin. That really stings. That's what's going on here. When the only people who are excited about the birth of the Messiah are Gentile astrologers and not people under foreign occupation or the religious leaders, there's a problem, right? But beyond exposing the sin of Jerusalem, I think Matthew's also reminding us of two truths. Number one, God's plan does not run along ethnic lines. Saw so back in chapter one. Matthew says Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to bless all the nations, Jew and Gentile alike. And here we see Israel is lost in unbelief and hardness of heart. And the result is the Gentiles find Jesus. And this is exactly what Romans chapter 9 says will happen throughout the church age. Israel, by and large, has fallen away from God so that God's good purpose to bring the Gentiles in would come to pass. And we see a microcosm of that here. But second... God loves to turn the wisdom of the world on its head. In our culture, who are the most important people? Politicians, athletes, actors, the rich. In ancient Israel, who were the most important people? Herod, the religious rulers, the rich. And the people most valued by this world are typically not impressed by the things of God. But what's interesting is the Bible tells us that God is not particularly impressed by the people who are so highly regarded by this world. In Matthew 5, Jesus says to his disciples, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In that day and age, the scribes and Pharisees were thought to be super righteous. The people who heard that thought, man, what chance do I have if they're not getting in? In Matthew 19, Jesus said to his disciples, Only with difficulty will a rich person... Enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples' immediate response is, who then can be saved if it's not the rich? If it's not the righteous, the super holy-looking people, who's getting in? But friends, God isn't giving out spots in heaven based on the world's estimation of us. In fact, God's election runs directly opposite the wisdom of this world. The Apostle Paul said it plainly in 1 Corinthians 1. Listen to this. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Who's going into the kingdom, friends? Not the people the world would pick. Not the elites. Not the people with the blue check mark on Twitter. The powerful and the beautiful and the rich. No, friends, if you're a believer, He has picked you. And truth be told, most of us are not the cream of the crop in the world's eyes. This is even more remarkable when we think about the fact that we are sinners and we are Gentiles. We are the people that first century Israel would turn their noses up. We are like the Magi. But praise God, believing friends, we are the chosen and predestined people of God anyway because of His grace alone. I think there's a further encouragement here which we need to remember, which is don't write anybody off. If God can draw Gentile astrologers to be the people who properly respond to Jesus here, He can still save the vilest sinners of our day. If we are still breathing, there is still hope for us to repentantly come to Christ. So God, as a demonstration of His grace and to expose and humiliate the hard-hearted unbelief of Israel, uses the most unlikely people imaginable, Gentile astrologers, to properly respond to Jesus. And He still uses the most unlikely people to worship Him today. Now, like I said, I want to finish up with five truths we see in this passage, which I think will help us understand the right worship of Jesus. Number one, the Magi are drawn by God. We're told in verse 2 that they have seen a star. Your translation may say they saw it when it rose or in the east. Either translation is defensible. But they saw a star. Now, before we ask what the star was, I think we should ask what the star meant. Why were they looking for a star? Well, the Magi probably came from Babylon. And if you remember, the Jews were taken to Babylon in exile. And I told you, even after the Jews were were allowed to return home to the Promised Land, many of the Jews remained behind. And in fact, there wound up being a giant Jewish community in Babylon that flourished until the Middle Ages. And so because of the vast Jewish influence in Babylon, it's not unreasonable to think that the Magi would have been familiar with at least a bit of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, a sinful Gentile prophet from the east, a figure not unlike these Magi, named Balaam, gave this prophecy in Numbers 24, 17. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. An early messianic prophecy that speaks of a star. And so a lot of scholars think this is why these Gentile Magi were looking for a star related to the birth of an Israelite king. Now what was the star? There have been a lot of attempts to explain it scientifically. From the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, to Halley's Comet, to a supernova. But a lot of these attempts fall flat either because they don't fit the chronological data the Bible gives us about the birth of Jesus, or because they don't satisfactorily explain verse 9, which tells us that the star appears to move. And I'm going to show you in a minute, it would have had to move really quickly. So these explanations don't really account for that. And for for these reasons, I am unpersuaded by the astronomical attempts to explain the star. It seems to me that like the virgin birth, this was a miraculous event, generated by God, contrary to the laws of nature, which is not repeatable. But while we cannot identify the astronomy behind this star with any certainty, what we can know is that God gave the Magi the exact sign that they needed to rightly interpret that the Christ had been born, which they would respond to by traveling 
to meet him. God drew them to Jesus. And that's very important to note, friends. Because in John 6, Jesus says very clearly, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that's still true today. We can only come to salvation on God's initiative. And so God drew the Magi. Or the Magi. Now, when they saw the star, they went to Jerusalem. Note that at this point in the passage, we are not told that the star moved. They simply saw the star, and they responded by going to Jerusalem, which was a reasonable place for them to go. Because if you assume there's a royal birth in Israel, you're probably going to head to Jerusalem. And when they got there, they started making inquiries. And they said, we want to meet the newborn king because we have come to worship him. This Greek verb worship can mean everything from worshiping God to paying homage to a king. Now, I think it's unreasonable to expect that the Magi understood that Jesus is God in human flesh. While they knew enough to anticipate the star, they clearly did not know all of the Messianic prophecies, or they would have gone to Bethlehem instead of Jerusalem, right? What they do expect is that a king of Israel has been born, and they have come to pay tribute to him. It just so happens that when they bow before him, they are indeed bowing in worship before the creator of the universe. They speak better than they know when they say, we want to worship him. But they don't find him in Jerusalem. Instead, they find another king, Herod. And Herod tells them to go to Bethlehem and find the Christ child and to let him know when they do. Now, only at this point, when the Magi leave Jerusalem, in verse 9, do we read that the star appeared to them again, and now and only now we're told that the star moved. It went before them until it stopped in a very clear way, indicating to them where the Christ child was. Now, Bethlehem is only five miles away from Jerusalem, a distance which could be traversed in two hours of leisurely walking. So this isn't the Magi tracked the slow progression of a star across the night sky over several days. This is the star leading them on a brisk evening stroll one night, and suddenly it stopped over one house. That's why I take this to be a miraculous event rather than a repeatable scientific phenomenon. And it's here that I want to make my second point about the Magi. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. When these guys saw the guidance of God, they rejoiced. Now, the guidance they got was a silent star. You know, today, friends, we have access to God's inerrant word. And that's a lot clearer and better than what the Magi got. What is our reaction to the Bible? When we read it, when we hear it preached, do we experience any joy when we interact with the scriptures? Or is this all old hat to us? You know, there's a saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And I worry that in our age of bumper sticker Bible verses and Facebook out-of-context Bible verses, and we all have ten Bibles in our house that are collecting dust, I worry that we have become so overexposed to the presence of the Bible that we regard it as boring and familiar. We have lost the sense of wonder that through this book, God Almighty, the maker and sustainer of the universe, deigns to speak to us. Friends, maybe it's our turn to be shamed by these pagan astrologers who found so much joy in what little revelation God gave them compared to the joy we have versus when we look at the amazing revelation God has given us. Friends, we need to recapture our sense of wonder that God has spoken and that He is speaking to us. It is a wonderful grace to hear the Word of God, which we should rejoice in. So the wise men received God's direction and they were led to a house. This may be the structure 
that Luke chapter 2 talks about, the guest room of the inn or the guest house which contained an animal room where Jesus was laid in a manger. That could be the structure here. But based on the fact that in just a few verses, Herod kills all the children under the age of two, I think it's likely that some time has passed since Jesus' birth. And so this house is probably the home that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus have moved into after Jesus' birth. And here in this house, we see the third truth we need to know about worship. The Magi are marked by humility. The Magi saw Jesus with Mary, and they fell before Him, not her, and they worshipped Him, or again, they paid homage to Him. Now, here are some men who are regarded as wise, who have the money to make a long journey, who bring extravagant gifts, and yet when they see a little baby, their reaction is to fall before Him. And friends, that is the right response to Jesus. You know, these days, a lot of Christians think it's cool to speak about Jesus as our buddy or our homeboy. I've seen preachers preach wearing irreverent t-shirts that show Jesus as a disc jockey. And that happens because we live in an irreverent culture, and Christians take our cues from the culture, and we have forgotten that anything is worthy of respect these days. But friends, the Magi saw Jesus as an infant, and they bowed before him. And if Jesus deserved that kind of homage as a little baby, what does the risen, reigning, resplendent Christ deserve from us today? The one before whom John fell over like a dead man. Friends, we must treat Jesus with the highest possible reverence. Especially because unlike the Magi, we know who we're bowing to. He is the God-man. He is the one who died for us. He is our Savior and our risen King. If anything, our worship should be filled with more awe and more reverence and more humility than theirs was. We must approach Jesus with humility. We dare not come saying, I'm great, I'm cool, Jesus, you're cool, I'm cool. No, we are ruined sinners who desperately need his mercy. And to, to ask him for that, we better come with humility. 1 Peter 5 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And now let me give your, uh, get your attention here on the, the fourth point. The Magi give the best gifts to Jesus. In their humility, they present Jesus with highly valuable gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Frankincense is an aromatic gum that could be burned to, to generate a pleasing smell. And myrrh is a spice which was used in perfume. Now note that there are three gifts listed, but we're never told there are just three Magi. That is never stated in the text. That's an assumption. These three gifts were extravagantly costly. They are gifts fit for a king. And we know that because when the Queen of Sheba visited King Solomon, we read in 1 Kings 10 that she gave the king gold and a very great quantity of spices. And it's appropriate Jesus should get the gifts Solomon got because in Matthew 12, he's going to tell us one greater than Solomon is here. These gifts may also fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah 60 says the nations one day will bring gifts to a restored nation of Israel that include gold and frankincense. Perhaps the idea is Jesus is the one who will restore Israel. In the same way, Psalm 72, which we started off reading today, says, May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. The Messiah, the king of Israel, should receive tribute from the nations. And Psalm 72 speaks of kings bringing these gifts. This is where the tradition comes from that the Magi were kings, although Matthew does not say that they were. But they bring these extravagant gifts. Now, since the days of the early church, these gifts have been seen as having prophetic importance for the life of Jesus. The gold speaks of Jesus as a king, 
The frankincense being incense speaks of Jesus being God or perhaps as a priest. And myrrh was used in the preparation of bodies for burial, according to John chapter 19. And this may anticipate Jesus' death on the cross. I think this significance is very plausible. But if it's intended, it was intended only in the mind of God. There's no reason to think the Magi had this level of understanding about who Jesus is and what he would accomplish. They simply brought the newborn king's extremely valuable gifts. Now today, friends, Jesus calls on his people to offer him something. Not just an hour on Sunday morning. Not just a few bucks in the offering box. Romans 12 tells us the appropriate response to Jesus, which is present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God wants us to render our whole lives as an offering to Him. That is the highest and best gift of all. That all we are and all we have ultimately belongs to Jesus. And we should live like that's true. That is our reasonable response to Jesus who gave all for us. So the Magi found Christ and they worshipped Him. But now as they prepare to leave, God intervenes and He tells them, Do not return to Herod. Go home and do not go through Jerusalem. The last thing I want to draw your attention to here, friends, is that these Magi, they obey God rather than men. The true worship of God necessarily entails obedience. The Bible most commonly explains the love of God by talking about obedience to His Word. And that's what the Magi did. They obeyed the Lord. They returned home. They did not go to Herod. And so here we have seen the example of the Magi and the right response to Jesus, which is worship. We have seen we can only worship Jesus if God draws us, that we should rejoice when we receive God's guidance, that we should approach worship with humility, that we are to worship Jesus with our all, and that the life of worship will be marked by obedience. And this is a powerful example of what it means to properly respond to Jesus. And so today, friends, my challenge to you is examine yourselves. Maybe today you don't know Jesus. Maybe you hate him. Maybe you're afraid of the commitment he demands. Maybe you're interested in studying Christianity or the Bible from afar. I'm interested in comparative religions, or I'm interested in knowing the Bible, but you don't really want to know Jesus. Friends, if that's you, be careful. Or maybe today you do know Jesus in a saving way, but you've slipped into incorrect thinking. You no longer want to pay the cost of following Jesus. You used to rejoice when you heard from God's Word, but when you come to church now, all you want to do is sleep or you're mired in sin, if that's you, consider the example of the Magi. Wonder again at the reality of God. God the Son became a baby and grew up and lived a perfect sinless life and He died and He rose from the dead victorious over death for you. That should move your heart to worship. Worship Him because He deserves it. For Psalm 96 says, Great is the Lord and He is greatly to be praised.